Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano, and today we're bringing a live taping with our Masters of Disasters at the LA Times Festival of Books this past weekend. Our Masters and I talked about their origin stories, how they got into covering disasters, the ones that changed their perspective about their beats, and how readers and listeners can nevertheless find hope as disasters become more and more common and deadlier. Enjoy. All heroes have origin stories. Superman was found in a Kansas cornfield. Wonder Woman was formed out of clay. Clayton Kershaw threw a curveball during a spring training game during his rookie year that made Vince Gully proclaim, holy mackerel. Here at the LA Times, we have a lot of such stories for our many, many journalism heroes. But there's a rarer class of individual among us, those who each week dive bravely into the future of the scary, scary planet. Not all heroes wear capes, and not all heroes can call themselves masters. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Saturday, April 22nd, Earth Day, during the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. Today, the origin stories of three LA Times reporters who cover an angry Mother Earth. It's times like these that we turn to my colleagues of catastrophe, our prophets of peril, the Otanis of uh-oh. I'm talking about masters of disasters. Musica maestro. Sitting in the earthquake chair, as always, is Ron Lynn. Ron, what school is more seismically prepared, UCLA or USC? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Oh, that's typical of a UC Berkeley graduate to say. <laughs> Our Cassandra of the Coast is Rosanna Shaw. Knock, knock. Who's there? Aska. Aska who? Aska reporter. That's good. Yeah, see, that, that's what this panel is uh, supposedly about. And back in the wildfire chair is Alex Wigglesworth. Alex, how on earth did you tell the rain gods to make it rain so much over the past three months? I did a dance. You did a dance? What kind of dance? Rain dance. Oh, duh. You ask a dumb question, get a very smart response. Masters, thank you so much. So I want to start with Ron. What's your origin story? How did you get to start covering earthquakes of all the beats you possibly could have? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so basically, um, I'll get into this a little bit later, but on my seventh birthday was uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake. It actually happened at 5.04 p.m., which is right about the time that we're, uh, that we're holding this. And... <laughs> And it was uh, it was an event uh, uh, in my life that uh, really resonated with me. So fast forward to when I've been at the the Los Angeles Times, uh, when there would be earthquakes, I would write about them. And uh, there was uh, this this giant earthquake that happened in New Zealand um, in 2011, and there were a number of buildings that collapsed and a lot of people died. Um, and so- Christchurch one, right? The Christchurch one, right. And so one of the things that kind of uh, came to mind was 
you know, could this happen here? There were these big concrete buildings that collapsed. Uh, and one of the things that came up on, you know, one of those Google searches that you can do is, is that there, there was a type of building there called a non-ductile concrete building that collapsed there. And we also had these buildings here in Los Angeles. And so one of the things that uh, me and Rosanna, we did was we looked to we see... We did grill UCLA, USC, and UC Berkeley on this as well. Yes. Is, is you know, look to see, you know, uh, where are these buildings in, uh, in California? Well, specifically in Los Angeles. And we found out that there were a bunch of these scientists that actually that had a, um, a list of these buildings. Uh, but they didn't want to give it out. They were really worried about getting sued. And we thought gosh, that seems like not a good reason to not give that information out. So, uh, Did you do like Louise Belcher and your like, eyebrow starts twitching <laughs> when you heard that? Like, I got to get after them. Yeah, it, it really was like that. And, you know, so one of the things that we did since they wouldn't give us the list is that we're, we're like, oh, well, we'll just try to make our own list. It wouldn't be as good, but, you know, we'll do our best. But, and it was good enough to kind of show the scale of the problem and we did a story on it. We said the city officials have known about this problem for decades, but haven't done anything about it. And that caused some embarrassment with the, with the city. And long story short, uh, the city, a couple of years later, decided that they would implement a law requiring these types of buildings as well as another class of buildings to be retrofitted. And that's kind of one of the, the key things that got me going on this. And 12 years later, how do you like covering earthquakes? I think it's one of the most important and fulfilling beats that uh, I've done. It's, um, I know for a lot of people, thinking about it brings a sense of existential dread. But for me, I'm actually kind of optimistic about it. One of the things that I found out in all this reporting is that people think, oh my goodness, uh, this means I'm going to die and, and I should be scared. And so I don't want to think about it. But you know, if we can send people to the moon, you know, surely we can make our buildings safer. And one of the things that I found about it was just this idea that you can actually make buildings a lot safer. There's a lot of things that you can do that are in your control to help ride out these quakes. Especially when you have a vengeful master like yourself. <laughs> Alex, California used to have wildfires every once in a while. Now it's a year long thing. How did you get into covering wildfires? Yeah, so I'm actually from Philly. Uh, so wildfires aren't so much a thing there. Um, we have gun violence, the occasional hurricane, that's pretty much it. Um, but I moved to LA in 2016 and I live near downtown, but you could see the San Gabriel Mountains from my house. Um, and I remember the first time I saw a smoke plume from a wildfire there, like I thought that, you know, the city was under attack, like nuclear attack. Oh I was God. losing my mind. Um, and cause before that, like when I thought of wildfires, I thought of like Smokey the Bear, fires burning deep in a forest somewhere away from people. Um, and that's when I realized that even when fires are burning in areas that we think of as wilderness, oftentimes and increasingly, it's really close to communities. So it's something that's, you know, top of mind for a lot of people. Um, and that's why I feel privileged to be able to cover it. When you actually go cover wildfires, does it scare you? Because, you know, earthquakes, Ron is just kind of like a firefighter waiting for something to happen. You could talk about preparation, but for you, like there is no plan. Like, oh, a wildfire, we're going to start one in a couple of days or we're forecasting. It just happens. It, I mean, it can be a little scary, um, but I mean, I'm always conscious about putting you know, my safety first. Um, I go to base camp. I check in with the firefighters. I mean, I think that there's definitely ways to tell the story without 
putting yourself like in the middle of a raging wildfire. Um, Cause then you, you know, you're not only risking yourself, right? You're also risking responders who would be coming to rescue you. So there are ways to do it just to, to be safe, like checking in a lot, be aware of your surroundings. And we do training every year at the LA Times um, for not just me, but other reporters who want to cover wildfires. Like a year ago, we had the El Segundo Fire Department come out and they taught us actually how to use the fire shelters where you zip yourself into like a, a tin foil bag. So mm. I feel good. I feel prepared to do it. Now that all the sports teams in Philadelphia are good, what's the biggest disaster over there? Uh, again, gun violence, the occasional hurricane. <laughs> the occasional hurricane? Yeah. What? Yeah, every once in a while. I mean, it's not like Florida, but we get like flooding and high winds. It, it's happened. Like Sandy, that was a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that Sandy. Was a lot of flooding for everybody. Speaking of scary ocean things. Rosanna covers the coast in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, used to be a wonder twin with Ron covering the earthquakes. So how did you start on the coast? Yeah, I covered earthquakes for a number of years. I've covered um, wildfires. I covered the last drought emergency in 2015, 2016. And I've always wanted to be on the environment team. And it's interesting going from earthquakes to climate change because both issues they both inhabit the space of uncertainty, but there is also so much within our control to prepare and plan and also mitigate. So it is very interesting to kind of switch and the timescales too on which we process these risks of earthquakes and climate change was, is also has been fascinating for me. Um, so I specialize in stories about the coast and ocean with a particular lens of California. And, you know, just to contextualize this and bringing in the rest of the environment team and the rest of our masters of disasters, you know, we all take on an aspect of the environment that is super unique to California. You know, with Alex on wildfires, Ron on earthquakes, Ian James on water, Tony Briscoe on air quality. We also have Sammy Roth covering the energy transition and Louis Sahagan covering the intersection of our natural and built environments. So think of, you know, the Los Angeles River and how so much of it is concrete, but the, you know, ecosystems and human habitats that, you know, coexist with all of the landscapes that we have so blindly paved over. You know, we also have Haley Smith and Dorney on breaking news, which there is no shortage of on the climate change beat and Suzanne Ross specializing in investigations. And I say this because it's really hard to cover all disasters. And I'm really proud of the way we collectively approach the California landscape as a team. And, you know, for me specifically on the coast, the California coast is massive. It's more than 1,200 miles long. So imagine going from Boston all the way to Georgia, you know, not to mention I'm in charge of the entire Pacific Ocean and everything that's happening underwater. <laughs> and so, you know, many of my stories focus on this line in the sand that we have continuously tried to force between the ocean and what we want to call land. You know, even though this edge between land and sea is constantly moving and inherently a place of tension. And, you know, to go back to the question of, you know, our origin story, like my personal relationship to the coast, I will admit, I don't have like a love at first sight um, story about when I first saw the ocean. You know, I'm super moved by the many scientists and Californians who do like have these stories about the first time they put their feet in the water, the first time they felt their toes dig into the sand. And, you know, now this, this connection with the sea has inspired their lifelong commitment to protecting the ocean and our shore. And I grew up in Massachusetts, you know, going to the beach was a learned experience for my family. My parents, you know, spent much of my childhood trying to figure out how this country works. And I think we're all still trying to figure that out. It's very confusing. It's called um, democracy. And so, you know, figuring out how to get to the beach in itself is 
a privilege and something that I am very attuned to when I am now covering the coast of California. And I do take great joy and responsibility in covering our coast today. And every time I am out there by the sea, you know, I'm just reminded of the power and the majesty of the ocean and just the fact that we have tried, you know, so hard to live so close to this massive body of water that, you know, just holds such immense power. And there is great beauty and consequence to that. All of you have done amazing stories on all of your beats, but Rosanna, I'll get back to you. Is there one story or one disaster in particular that changed your mind about how you wanted to cover this issue and why? And, you know, just to give a litany of some of Rosanna's stories, she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist along with some of our other colleagues because they did a video game like Choose Your Own Adventure and how uh, rising waters is going to subsume the California coast. The one that disturbs me all the time is all the big old oil barrels of DDT Right off the coast of Catalina, so across the sea is a bunch of nasty, nasty stuff. So name one. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking about this a lot um, ahead of this recording because I spent years responding to distinct, like, headline-grabbing disasters, wildfires, mud... Oh my God, I almost said mudslides. Oh my God. Yeah, mudslides. Debris flows. I responded (laughs) to landslides and debris flows and earthquakes and... You know, for a really long time, like my life was responding to a, oh my God, this happened. Can you go out there? Talk to whoever's there, talk to first responders. But, you know, I would say that most of the disasters I cover now are way more insidious. You know, they affect us every single day, but in low enough doses that very rarely grab the kinds of headlines that, you know, I'm used to with other disasters that I've covered. So, but there are, you know, as you've known, the scary signs of these slower moving disasters just if you take the time to look, the king tides are getting bigger and bigger each year. Water shows up in like very weird places as the tide is moving up from underground. The PCH keeps collapsing into the ocean and we take landslides along Big Sur for granted. You know, it's like, we're like, oh, the road fell into the ocean again and people can't get from point A to point B for another couple months. Oh, well, this is like our new normal. And, you know, there are so many more heat waves in the ocean that we don't pay attention to because it's harder to see what's happening in the ocean. And yeah, like with DDT, sea lions are suffering from a crazy aggressive cancer that's somehow connected to all the DDT and other chemicals we've historically dumped into the ocean. And these are all more subtle forms of disaster, but disaster all the same. Disaster, disaster. Uh, Ron, earthquake that formed you as a reporter or as a person. So... It was, uh, let's see, it was my seventh birthday. Ron the- being seven. <laughs> um, and it was scary. I Where was were at, you when it happened? I remember I was at home. It was, I was, a, in, it was in 5.04 p.m. Alameda. I was on the phone with my cousin who was wishing me a happy birthday. Aww. And then everything started shaking and it was, it was very violent. And I remember my mom saying earthquake in Chinese and then it was over. And then I don't know if something about being a seven-year-old, you're you just I was just was very just impressed with it. I was just like <laughs> That's very wow. Ron. That's such a Ron response. <laughs> and then you know, I turned on the TV and I saw the uh, the double decker freeway collapse. And I remember just being very impressed with the with the amount of damage uh, that happened to it. And uh, two years later, there would be the Oakland Hills fire that happened right around my birthday again. Oh, and and it, when's your birthday? <laughs> the actual day, October 17th. Okay, so yeah. we need to send you 
and a hot air balloon <laughs> away from the earth. That's why. Anyways, go on. So I was always very interested in trying to unpeel the onion of why these things happened. And one of the things that happened in the course of my reporting later was this idea that, you know, at the time of the earthquake, there was a lot of talk about, oh, it was the soils. It was the soils underneath the freeway that caused it to collapse. But in actuality, if you actually look at all the records, Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, knew that it was vulnerable. In fact, they should have known because, as you all remember, in the 1971 Silmar quake, Freeways collapse uh, then. Uh, Northridge Hospital, that was a, a lot of fatalities, right? Yeah, San Fernando, uh, uh, the, the VA hospital, and also the brand new Olive View Medical Center. Uh, that also collapsed. Um, so all of these are concrete things. Uh, and Pun intended? <laughs> always. Okay. <laughs> and, There's a lot of great earthquake Funds, groundbreaking, yes. whose fault is it? Yeah. You know, Rhonda and I had so much fun writing these stories. You know, and so 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 for me, I just uh it always struck me that we can know that these things are a problem, but will ourselves into ignorance because it seems like, oh my gosh, it seems so difficult to to really fix. But if you really think about it, you know, if California has done all these things, such as build this incredible University of California system in the course of a generation or build, you know, one of the world's most impressive water conveyance systems in the world that makes Los Angeles, you know, what it is today. Surely we can figure out ways to, to resolve, you know, these issues. So for me, it's been always very interesting to kind of, you know, they talk about how there are certain things that, you know, no one really wants to talk about. I, I kind of like to talk about those kind of untouchable things and say, hey, it's a problem and we can do something about it. Just helpful. Alex, what wildfire? I mean, you saw that initial plume and you thought, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. When did you think like, oh, wow, this is, this is something? Yeah. So the 2021 wildfire season or fire year, um, was the first I covered as an environment reporter. And I, I think we all kind of watched in horror as the Dixie Fire became the first in California history to burn from one side of the Sierra Nevada to the other. And then a couple of days later, the Caldor Fire did it too. Um, and I went up to cover the Caldor Fire in Northern California. Um, and I, I think the first thing that struck me was just how massive the fire was. Like it took an hour or two to drive from one flank to the other. And then also how massive the response to the fire was. It was like very warlike. There's like um, a base camp um, with barracks and cafeterias um, and like thousands of firefighters. But still when I would drive around to like different parts of the fire, there would be like pockets of flames and like trees burning um, where there were no people fighting it because it was so big that there weren't enough people to be on all parts of the fire at once. And I drove to the town of Grizzly Flats, um, which had completely burned down a couple of days before, like it was still smoldering. And in the center of town, there was like a church that had been destroyed. And the only way that you could tell that it was a church was because there was like rows of metal chair frames that were still lined up. And I saw a squirrel that had a burned tail and it was kind of like clinging to the base of a tree, like looking dazed. And it actually brought me to tears because... It hit me. You, you can rebuild a town, like not to minimize the devastation of losing a town. It's horrible. But there are some things that, you know, once they're gone, like people can't fix them. And that same sense of loss kind of hit me last year. Um, I went to visit the 
aftermath of the Dixie Fire, also in Northern California. And a group of scientists and conservationists took me to a burn scar on the side of a mountain outside the town of Greenville, which was also destroyed that year. And so it was like a moonscape, what they call it. Like the trees were black, the soil was black. There were like no signs of life. And so the Dixie Fire had burned through that area. Um, but 14 years before, another wildfire called the Moonlight Fire had also burned through that area. And then, so that fire burned so hot, it killed all the plants. There were some reforestation efforts. Things were starting to grow back. Then the Dixie Fire burned through and killed everything that had been growing back. And so what the scientists told me was that this burn scar was so big, there was no chance of a conifer forest ever regrowing there. And that this is something that's increasingly happening across the Sierra, um, where there are these repeat fires that are burning so large of an area that, you know, we're losing chunks of these forests uh, to wildfires because of climate change and because of certain like land use decisions of how the forests have or haven't been uh, maintained. That really opened my eyes to the fact that when you, you're covering wildfires, you have like the immediate disaster, like something's on fire. But like Rosanna mentioned, like you also have sort of a more slowly unfolding disaster of like, how did we get here? What decisions brought us to this point? And what are the long-term effects? And so I think it's really important to try and note both of those things, like the immediate disaster and the context when I'm writing. And that's what I try and do. Rosanna? Yeah, I was going to say, as you were speaking, Alex, what strikes me in the space that we cover is how our baseline for normal continues to shift. And when I was covering wildfires, I remember I was like, someone told me who had covered wildfires for 20 years before me said that, you know, this is the last year where September, I was taught when I did my first training that September, October was fire season in California. And that was the last year ever that fire season didn't start until September. And then it started in August and then it started in July. And then there was suddenly a fire in January that freaked everyone out. And But our baseline at this point by 2021, just listening to Alex cover that season that you corrected to fire year, like even that terminology, we now just call it, you know, wildfires. We don't have a fire season anymore. Is so striking to me. But when our baseline for normal shifts like this, we kind of forget how not okay this is and how much of a catastrophe we are already living in and continue to live in. And we almost kind of correct it in our own minds. And we don't realize just how much things have changed from 12 years ago when I covered the last fire season that started in September. Cheery stuff. We'll be back after this break. Masters, so what's a typical disaster day for you like? So for me, it varies a lot depending on the time of year. Um, in the winter, I usually get a little bit of a break where I get to sort of dig into some of those like slower moving, longer term things. So like something that I've been looking at a lot recently is, you know, how do government agencies and even the private industry, you know, manage like the billions of dollars that go into fighting and preparing for and mitigating wildfires. And then during the fire year, it's like throw everything you're working on out the window and just like, I don't know. It's kind of like one of those like machines that like launches tennis balls like in your face and you're just like trying to like catch them all. So like, again, like I try, I try and talk to scientists. I try and talk to indigenous voices for all, like even breaking news stories. Cause those are just two um, wells of knowledge that are so helpful to informing wildfire reporting. And then other, it's like sort of just chronicling, you know, what's happened, like the loss of lives, loss of habitat, loss of buildings. Extra sunscreen. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ron, especially you with earthquakes technically happening every single day, how do you prepare for an earthquake day? Yeah. So uh, you don't. <laughs> well, there's a couple things you can do. Yes, you do if you have so, an earthquake kit. That's true. And if you actually um, put your bookcases, bolt them to the wall. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, there are a couple things. One is, you know, when there's no earthquakes, you know, I write about how, you know, various things. So, for example, I, we just wrote a story about something that I didn't really understand that well before, just, you know, uh, homes that are at risk of uh, collapsing. Generally, you think of of uh, wood frame homes as being okay, but uh, there are a lot of homes with uh, living space on top of a garage that that's uh, at risk of collapse. So I'll do a lot of different types of stories about what are the risks involved in existing buildings and what can we do to resolve them. And then when the actual earthquake happens, uh, you know, the last big earthquake that Southern California felt was the Ridgecrest earthquake. And I remember- That was July 4 weekend, 2019. Yes. And I think Rosanna was actually happened to be doing. I was. I was working <laughs> until very late. And our night editor, it was a new night editor. And he had no idea what to do. And I was just there because my life ends in the newsroom at 10 p.m. And, and, <laughs> and I was in South Africa, of all places. On a cruise. I, <laughs> we have a joke, actually, in the newsroom that whenever Ron goes on vacation outside of California, an earthquake happens in California. And it actually... It, the number of times this has happened is actually a trend. And so... <laughs> I know things. Um, no. I think you're like a dark master, Thanos master or something. But I have this like spidey sense where when Ron's on vacation, especially in South Africa, like I'm going to be ready in case an earthquake happens and the night editor needs help because he has no idea how to comb the USGS log. So luckily... Uh, I happened to be, I had was in the hotel room and I, I think I got the news alert, the LA Times news alert. Oh, there was an earthquake. Um, I better see if I can help. And I, and, and, and I did. Um, and, and we did the story and everything. And, uh, and it was great. I went to sleep. When I woke up, <laughs> another earthquake had happened when I was sleeping. It was, a, it was a bigger quake. And I remember seeing the emails and I don't know if you see what happens when you get a lot of emails, but it was the emails that happened like an hour after the quake happened. So I was like, what is going on? And I'm like, oh no, another one <laughs> happened. And so that was a lot of madness, you know, uh, a lot of chaos. A lot of the stories that we do before an earthquake happens is helpful to kind of explain what's going on. And, you know, and that particular earthquake, there was a lot of things to kind of learn about how there can be a smaller earthquake that can be a precursor to a bigger earthquake. And and, you know, we can also see how there are certain things that uh, a lot of the things that we found out was, you know, the, where the earthquake happens really matters. If the earthquake isn't directly underneath a, a large populated city with a lot of old buildings, the effect can not necessarily be uh, that bad. So there's a lot of different types of stories uh, that can be done <laughs> when an earthquake happens. So Rosanna, you're on the coast, you're covering a thousand miles worth. Are you just like in a convertible going up and down PCH nonstop? No, because that is not carbon friendly. Oh, touche. <laughs> um, I actually, it's funny. I feel like this question, I get asked this question the most from journalism students. Hey, what's your life like? And, you know, do I want this life? And I don't know how to answer this question because every day is different as Alex and Ron can speak to. So the only consistent thing about my day to day is that 
I somehow only have time to drink half a cup of black coffee before I lose control of the day. So that's the only consistent thing that I can say about my day-to-day. But, you know, the way I answer it now is that the California coast is more than 1,200 miles long. It's more than 60 cities and counties that, you know, hug the coast of California. It's multiple. I'm, so I'm keeping track constantly of all these city council meetings and agendas and county agendas and just kind of looking at the land use battles and land use issues and environmental kind of cases that are coming before these local and regional governments. And then there's about 12 state and federal agencies that I am constantly monitoring as well. The California Coastal Commission, the Coastal Conservancy, NOAA. Um, I have a bunch of fisheries like kind of groups that I also monitor. And then on top of that, there are a number of fantastic marine science institutes, um, research institutes in the state of California. So I'm constantly talking to sciences within all these different fields on kind of their latest research. So in terms of like what my day-to-day is like, I'm at any point conversing with someone from those spaces within academia, within science, politics. And community. And community. And, you know, the other question I ask myself when I'm drinking my half cup of coffee is today a Boots Day or a Birkenstocks Day? And so, um, yeah, I do get to go out on the beach a lot and out to sea, which is really wonderful. And, yeah, it's a really hard question to ask, but I think that's the fun part about being a reporter. You never know what your day is going to end up looking like and where you'll end up by the end of the day. You could plan, and then those plans just go down like half a cup of coffee. And you can plan, and if Ron decides to go on vacation, an earthquake can happen. (laughs) An earthquake does happen. All of you just do so much incredible work, so much awesome stuff, but all of it is also stuff that scares so many people, and rightfully so, and especially with wildfires and the coast, it's an existential dread. It's like you don't know what's going to happen, and a lot of people think, there's nothing I could do about it except be afraid. So what advice would you give to Californians in the sense of being hopeful, even as these disasters increase? Where is the hope in that? What is the hope people can get? Ron? It's, for me, it's the optimism that I can do things that can make things better. You know, one of the things when I hear uh, some structural engineers about what are the things that you can do to make your home safer? And some, some of the items are just not that scarily difficult. It's one of them is as simple as making sure your water heater is properly strapped. It's like a very cheap thing to do. And you can reduce your risk. The, the, uh, an unstrapped water heater is the number one reason why a, a house can catch on fire, you wow. know, after an earthquake. Yeah. I mean, but it's like such the, the most simplest thing. And then, you know, it can also extend to the broader things. I mean, one of the things that I think Angelinos can feel very, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that was actually a good thing that City Hall actually did was require a lot of apartment buildings. These are the, the top heavy apartment buildings with the uh, carports on the ground floor that are held up by these toothpicks. Big bats, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, the, the city council required them to be retrofitted in part inspired by our reporting and now, you know, a majority of these apartment buildings are retrofitted and that's going to save a lot of lives. And to me, having that kind of hope that you can do things to deal with the threat of earthquakes, that gives me a lot of confidence that, you know, things are going to be okay. So uh, it's kind of that sense of inspiration that we can do things about earthquakes to prevent a catastrophe from really being a catastrophe. Right. Buildings kill people, not earthquakes. Right. 
Yeah. Like guns. Alex, what brings you hope? Well, I mean, I guess one thing to be hopeful about is that you have to be aware of a problem before it can be fixed. And I think that fires in California have gotten to the point where they're impossible to ignore. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the next step is people taking steps to address that. And it's a tough one because it's not necessarily something that, you know, one person can take an action to really like address. Like you can harden your home, but if your community isn't hardened, then it's still going to burn down in a fire. And even sometimes if your community is hardened, um, if the weather conditions are right, you know, it's very windy, it's dry, your home might burn down anyway. But I think that's why it's important to sort of um, hold elected officials and government agencies accountable for really sharing in the solution to this problem. Because it's like definitely not something that one or two people can do themselves. I think obviously also being aware of your fossil fuel consumption and trying to get at it from that aspect is uh, something that could be helpful. And, you know, if if wildfires are the thing that makes people take those steps and be aware that, you know, this is sort of the canary in the coal mine for climate change, that's, I guess, kind of hopeful. If that's the canary in the coal mine, then rising ocean levels are the, oh, I don't know, Maria Callas. I, that's, that joke's not going to work. But Rosanna... <laughs> The water goes up. The glacial caps are melting. The water is not going to go down anytime soon. How on earth can you find hope in what you do? I'm just going to build off what Alex just said. And, you know, even just focusing on today, I just finished a earlier panel at the Festival of Books on climate change. And it was a packed room. It sold out. And I have been really stunned and heartened to see just how much this conversation in the last few years have become has become one of not, oh, I don't want to think about it, to let's talk about it, let's do something about it. And it reminded me of something that climate scientist Dr. Catherine Hayhoe said a couple years ago, one of the most important things you can do to fight climate change is to start talking about it. And so the fact that so many more people are now talking about it gives me so much hope. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I felt like I was just publishing stories into a void. And now there is a conversation that is happening. There are questions. It's getting complicated, still messy. And people are freaked out and anxious and sad. But there is hope amid all of this darkness. In other words, people should be reading the LA Times more. Yes, latimes.com slash climate. Perfect. We'll be back after this break. And now comes our traditional ending to Masters of Disasters, where we ask our masters what's bringing them joy during these terrible times. Ron, let's start with you. What's bringing you joy? Croissants. <laughs> croissants. Ooh. <laughs> what kind of croissants? Mm, both the the almond kind and the uh, the chocolate the kind. The almond kind <laughs> is not a good croissant. <laughs> you have to go with the chocolate one or just a good buttery flaky one. But it's your joy, not my joy. <laughs> Alex, what's bringing you joy? Um, I don't know if you saw my colleagues around the festival wearing um, these LA Times Guild t-shirts like the one that I have on, but we are fighting for a new contract. And to me, it's really inspiring that we're, you know, we're all working together to really protect the institution that we all love by making it um, a place for talented journalists to thrive. 
and I know that you guys love it too. So thank you for being here. Also bringing me joy. Thank you. Yes, yes. Union power. And Rosanna, what's bringing you joy? Okay, so the tradition on the tradition of the joy question is that I always answer this question with a joke. So I come bearing jokes. Okay, Gustavo, why did the mermaid wear seashells? To not cover something. Because she grew out of her bee shells. Oh, <laughs> zing. So I think we need to cut that one, but that one gave me a lot of joy. That's, that's PG-13. That's, that's available. That's like PG-19. Yeah. No, that's PG-13. That, that was a good one. One more. Okay, so here's the, like, here's the one for the actual recording. I, I've got two, actually, if you want extra joy. Um, first one, Gustavo, what do you call a fish with no eyes? Zing, I didn't get that one. Do I need to explain it? You spell fish, F-I-S-H, and if you remove the I, it becomes... Ooh, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm being honest, too. I didn't get it. That's a, that's a great one. Third joke. Gustavo, why was the whale super sad? Because it was blue. Yes, my punchline is because he was a blue whale. I got it close. Oh, my God. And that's it for our Masters of Disasters. Alex Wigglesworth, Rosanna Shaw, Ron Lynn, our Masters, and Ashley Brown here, our half on Mario Diaz on engineering. Gracias to all. And that's it for this episode of The Times, Essential News from the LA Times. Ashley Brown and Dave Toledo were the jefes on this episode. It was edited by Hiba El Urbani and Mario Diaz mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasali, and David Toledo and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistants are Roberto Reyes and Nicholas Perez. Our fellow is Helen Lee. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera, Shani Hilton, and Hiba El Urbani. And our theme music is by Andrew Ipe. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back Friday with all the news in this Madre. Gracias.